after uh, being born and raised in the southeast, there is a whole new appreciation for rain that you get when you live on the west coast and I mean, it's a, it's a spiritual thing, friends. It's a spiritual reality. When it starts to rain, I pull out the flannels. I'm like, I am fully embracing this, and praise God. Hopefully, it brings some relief to some of the wildfires that we have burning out here right now, continuing to hold all the families affected by those in our prayers. And so, friends, today... We are diving back into the book of Ephesians, and we are coming down the home stretch, I think. Don't hold me to that. Not making any promises. But I do, I do believe I have an ambitious goal for today. Um, I want to cover the end of chapter 4, all of chapter 5, and the beginning of chapter 6. Who's here for it? Who's here for it? All right. My goal is to keep you engaged, and my prayer is that something of this amazing passage of Scripture would sink deep into your hearts, into your souls today, that it would be transformative, that it would be the source of setting you free in some way in your own life, because, man, all, all Scripture, we believe, is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, for correcting, for growing us up into who Christ is has called us to be. But this one, man, this section in particular, Paul is focusing in. He's focusing in on something, and, and it's gonna be the title of my message today because as I studied and read and prayed about this passage of Scripture this week, and I wrestled, I said, man, what should I call this? What is he hitting on here? What is Paul going for here? And the phrase that kept coming to my mind for this passage of Scripture was simply this, behind closed doors. Behind closed doors. And I think what Paul is really asking today, I think what this letter, when he's writing to the church in Ephesus, what he's really pressing his finger on is simply this, this simple question, what does your life look like when no one's watching? What does your life look like behind closed doors? You see, the Christian life is never intended to be an external display of just righteousness and good deeds and pretentious behavior and holier-than-thou stuff like the Pharisees. We'll get to that in a minute. You see, the Christian life is meant to be transformative, not just on the external things of your life, but on what happens in your soul, on what happens in the personal areas of your life behind closed doors where no one sees but God himself, where maybe even your closest friends don't know. And what Paul is saying, I think, in this entire section from chapter four all the way to chapter six, I think it can be summed up in a few verses here that I wanna walk us through to start things off. Paul starts off with this amazing phrase in Ephesians 5.1. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. <laughs> okay, thanks, Paul. That's super helpful. Uh, love to give that one a shot. Be imitators of God. Be like God. You're not God. 
you cannot replace God. There's only one God, but we want your life to imitate God. Okay, what does that look like, Paul? Well, it looks like Jesus. Jesus was God in the flesh. Therefore, I want you to imitate, to be a reflection of what God is like to the world by imitating Jesus in your home, at your workplace, everywhere you are. Be imitators of God as beloved children. I love that. So he says, look, it starts with the fact this this reality of imitation begins right here. You've already been chosen, adopted. You've already been called loved by God. Therefore, live as he's called you to live. The grace comes first. The love comes first, then the actions come next. So be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. This word walk, we've talked about this a lot in Ephesians. The word walk, when it's referred to in the Christian faith, it just means life. How are you walking? How are you living your life? What daily choices are you making? What decisions are you making? We've talked about this in Ephesians. Nothing changes if nothing changes. If you're walking towards the same destination and you don't change directions, you're just gonna end up wherever you were walking. How are you walking? Paul says walk in love, the defining attribute of your life, the defining attribute of your choices, the the motivation behind everything should be a life lived in love. For others, for God, for yourself, loving yourself, loving others as you love yourself. And imitate this. He says, I want you to imitate the same love that Christ loved us with. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That's what love looks like laying down our lives for others, laying down our lives for those who are closest to us. And so all the details that Paul is about to get into in this section of scripture, all this idea of imitating God, it really comes down to, is your life marked and defined by sacrificial love? And we'll actually look at what that looks like in a second. We're gonna get real practical because Paul gets real practical, gets down into it, right? The next verse I want us to see in this section is he says this. He says, you are light in the Lord. Does that sound familiar? You are light in the Lord. Walk, again, live as children of the light. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter five? Similar words, right? He said, you are the light of the world. Like a city on a hill shines so that others can see the life that you're living and give glory to God in heaven, and Paul says, uh, yeah, I'm agreeing with Jesus. Good idea on Paul's part. He says, you are light in the Lord. He says, don't act like the light, don't be like the light. He goes, you are light. You are the light of the world, therefore walk, live as children of light. For the fruit of light, okay, what does that look like, Paul? Again, he gets practical here. The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right, and true. So I'm gonna gonna simplify it for y'all, make it real easy for everyone, okay? What it means to walk in light and walk in love in all the decisions that you face in your daily life, 
You're gonna be faced with hundreds, if not thousands of choices a day from meaningless little choices like, well, this one's kind of important, like will I brush my teeth or not? It's an important choice. To big choices around, should I take that job? Should I transfer schools? Should I marry that person? Small choices to big choices, we are faced with these things every day. And Paul goes, look, I'm not going to prescribe exactly what you should do, but I am gonna say this. The fruit of a good choice, the way you can tell if a choice is good or bad is by its fruit. It's kind of like the way you can tell if something is a peach tree or a banana tree based on the fruit it produces, tells you what kind of tree it is, is this, is the fruit of that choice good and right and true? Does it lead to more goodness? Does it lead to more rightness? Does it lead to more truth in your life and the world around you? You see, Paul is hitting on something so important in these chapters, and what he is bringing us all to, I believe, is three main points. He's wanting to say to us right off the top, friends, your character counts. And character, as we know, it is not just what, it's not just about what you do on the outside. Character is about who you are. It's about the choices you make when no one's looking. Everybody makes good choices in the limelight, for the most part. It's easy to make good choices when the world is watching. It's a lot harder when no one's watching and you think, maybe I can get away with this. Secrets love darkness. Paul says that in chapter five as well, but our character counts. Number two, he says, I wanna lay out for you all the contours of Christianity. What does this Christian life look like? Because there are things that are good and right and true, and there are other things that are bad and wrong and false. There are virtues and there are vices. Come on, somebody. (laughs) There are things we know this is gonna be good for us and all the people around us, and there are other things we know, man, this is not gonna be good for me and probably not good for anyone around me. So what are the contours? What does it mean to live the Christian life? Because things have changed a lot. We'll get into that as well. Then number three, Paul wants to present to us even though it runs against the grain of the culture of his day and our day, he wants to present to us the life we're all looking for. He says, look, the life that you actually wanna live, the life behind closed doors where no one else can see except God and yourself, the life that you want to live, a life where you're not waking up with anxiety because you're trying to maintain a double life, a life where you feel like you're constantly hiding or having to be a chameleon in front of different groups of people. The life that you wanna live is an authentic life, not a perfect life, not one without brokenness or flaws, not a life without any vices at all, but a life that says, look, I know who I am, I know what I'm about, I know I'm a beloved child of God in process, and I can be free and at peace in that. This is the life that we all want to live. It's the life we're looking for. So number one, character counts. Paul is calling us, to be imitators of God, to walk as children of light, to live in love. He's saying, look, I want you to live an authentic life and the opposite of authenticity is hypocrisy. 
The opposite of authenticity is hypocrisy. And friends, I don't know if you know this, but there is nothing more exhausting and stressful than trying to live a double life. There is nothing more exhausting or stressful than trying to live a double life. Friends, being a hypocrite is exhausting. The whole idea of hypocrisy, and Jesus talks about this a lot in the Gospels, is that who you present yourself to be on the outside is not actually who you are on the inside. And the standard that you're trying to hold others to is not a standard you're willing to keep on your own when the doors are shut and no one is watching. And so Jesus, he said it like this. He went right after it with the scribes and Pharisees. He says this, Matthew 23, starting in verse three, and we'll have the verses on the side screen. This rocked me this week. I've read this passage a lot. I don't think I've ever seen the first verse. It says this, do and observe all that they teach you, talking about the scribes and Pharisees. Hey, their teaching is good. They're actually teaching you the law of Moses. A lot of what they're saying is right. He says this, do and observe all they teach you, but do not follow their example. For they preach, but do not practice. Woo! Friends, that's the scariest verse on the planet for a preacher. Because here's the deal, I, I'm a mess, and I know I'm a mess, and my wife knows I'm a mess. If she was here, she'd be like, amen, he's a mess. But he owns it, he's real about it. He doesn't just live there in a place of absolute defeat. He doesn't cultivate a life of secret sin, he lives in the light. And I can stand before you today and say that with a clean conscience because that matters to me. It matters to me. It matters to me that Christian leaders have a good witness in the world. It matters to practice what we preach. And that was Jesus' issue with the Pharisees. Verse 4, he goes on, it says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. It goes on to the next verse. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. He goes on. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. Jesus did not have any problem with broken, messy people. In fact, he hung out with them all the time. Lepers, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, the outcasts of society. He hung out. They were his friends, fishermen. I mean, he, he had no prejudice whatsoever when it came to who he was willing to be with and call his friend. The only issue he had was with religious leaders, hypocrites, who were putting a burden on people in order to get... You know, so those people felt like I got to do these things to get right with God, while in fact, none of those leaders were holding to the same standard behind closed doors. And what Paul is addressing here is this reality that character counts. The life you live, washing the inside of the cup, not just walking around like a beautiful tomb or a beautiful gravestone, but actually being full of life on the inside. That's what Christianity is about. I was thinking about this phrase when, when Paul says, be imitators of God. And that word imitation, it translates 
awesome into English, um, specifically for the word used of comedians that make their living on imitating others. And I don't know if y'all are a fan of Frank Caliendo. This guy is amazing. If you've seen him, you know. But I, I snagged this clip from the last week of Frank Caliendo, who's made his living imitating other people. And here's a shot of him on David Letterman doing one of the best impersonations I've ever heard. Check this out. Our uh, first guest is a uh, sports legend, both on and off the field. He's been the NFL's premier color commentator for more than 25 years and recently was inducted into the uh, Professional Pro Football Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, here's John Madden. Good to have you on the show. Nice to, uh, nice to see you. How are things going? Pretty good, Dave. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of places you could be, but I mean... <laughs> Anytime you're at a place like this, you think, <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, things start to get, you, know, you want to be on a, in a funny place, and this is one of those funny places. And if for another place, and it's not as funny, you think, <laughs> I mean, why am I in that place? I, I, what I wanted to be was in a funny place, and boom. <laughs> I mean, I'm out of it right now, Dave. Good. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh... amazing, isn't it? The mannerisms, the voice tone, all the things. Sounds just like John Madden. He's an amazing imitator, impersonator of John Madden, but here's why Frank Caliendo is not a hypocrite. Because when he left David Letterman, he took off the wig, he took off the eyebrows, his eyebrows were intense, and uh, he dropped the accent. He didn't walk around, he didn't go into his home, he didn't live the rest of his life pretending to be John Madden, claiming to be a Hall of Fame football coach. He just was imitating him temporarily for fun. And friends, what Paul is asking us to do here when he says imitate God is not to take the place of God. We're never gonna take the place of God. There is only one God and we are not him. He's not saying become God. He's saying this, I want you to reflect him to the world. I want your life to embody the life of Christ to such a degree that when people see you and they hear you and, and they get to know you, the more they get to know you, the more they think, man, that's different. Something else is going on here. And the more whether they know it or not, the more it actually draws them closer to Jesus because your life is being shaped more and more by the Holy Spirit to be an imitation of Christ, to grow into the likeness of Christ. And not just with the, the way our words sound, but with our entire life. We're called to be imitators of God. And character counts. What we do is count. Who we counts. Who we are counts. I love Lou Holtz, one of the greatest football coaches of all time. We're on football coaches now. Might as well keep it going. Won a national championship with Notre Dame. And at a graduation commencement speech, he said this. And I, I found this clip on YouTube. But he, he said this. And he said to all the graduating students, he said, life is simple. Do what's right and avoid what's wrong. If you have any questions, get out the Bible. Lou Holtz. Boom, there it is. In case you had any questions, there it is. But what Lou Holtz is talking about, he, he's not wrong when he says it. I just read this verse, right? What did Paul say? He said, you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. 
Lou Holtz sounds a lot like Paul, doesn't he? If you want the fruit of your life to be good and right and true, then make decisions that are good and right and true. Live in such a way, walk in such a way that is good and right and true, not bad and false and wrong. You see, Paul lays out, and he does this to connect with the Greek audience, Paul lays out something that a lot of Greek writers would do in the time of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. They would, they would create lists in their letters and in their writings, and they would have virtue lists and vice, list of vices. So virtues and vices, and they would say, here's the good things, here's the bad things. And I love the word vice. Isn't that a perfect description of behavior? We all have vices, character flaws, things inside of us that we wish weren't there, tendencies towards things that we know, man, this, this if I feed this appetite in my life, man, it's, gonna, it's not gonna go well for me. Character matters, character flaws matter, virtues and vices are real, and a vice, that, that word for vice, you can even picture it, a vice or a clamp is something that is literally designed to hold and not let go. To hold something tight and not let go, it looks like this, this is a vice clamp. And I think if we were honest, if we sat down for a minute and thought about our own lives, we probably got a few of these hanging onto our arms and our legs our fingers, our toes, we got a few vices in our lives. Some character flaws that are holding on pretty tight that we wish we could just unscrew those and move on. And what Paul says is this, he says, look, we're at a crossroads for the Christian faith because the Christian faith used to be completely associated with Judaism. So the contours of Christianity were kind of blurred with Judaism. It began as a Jewish Movement. So outsiders who were looking in at Christianity thought, oh, that's just a new denomination of Judaism. They're still meeting in the synagogues. It's basically the first believers were almost entirely Jewish. And everybody knew who the Jewish people were because they lived separate from everyone else. They wore different outfits than everyone else. They ate different foods than everyone else. They kept the Sabbath and did not work on one day a week unlike everyone else. And they kept the Torah which was a very distinct way of life. The contours of Christianity at that time just looked a lot like Judaism. But as soon as Gentiles and Greeks and Romans started getting saved, the question then became, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Do we need to have these Greeks and Romans, do they need to follow Torah and obey Sabbath and kosher food laws? Do they need to wear the, the prayer boxes on their forehead and on their arms? Do they need to become Jewish in order to become Christian? And what Paul is saying is this. He goes, here's what's different about Christianity. The contours of the Christian faith, they're not prescriptive. You know how a doctor will prescribe you something to do to get better? Physical therapist for me recently trying to work on some pain in my knees. He prescribed me, he's told me what to do to deal with the pain. It involves stretching every day. Crazy stretches that I've never done before. More stretching than I've ever done before. More stretching than I ever wanna do again. But I have to stretch three times a day, every day, if I want the knee pain to go away. It's prescriptive. It's, he's telling me exactly what to do for how long. That's what religion is. That's what Judaism was. It was prescriptive. Here are all the rules. 
Make sure you follow them. Don't break any of them. There's a lot. 600. Plus or minus. Whole lot of laws. Here's exactly what to do if you want to make God happy. It's very prescriptive. And Paul comes along and he goes, actually, the contours of the Christian life, it's not as much about prescriptions and rules. It's more about discernment and wisdom. Check this out. I'm going to go back to this verse again. He says, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Now, the very next verse, I think we'll have it on the side screens. He goes on and he says this. Verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 10, he says, try to discern Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. He goes on. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Goes on. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Paul doesn't say, here's exactly what you have to do in every single situation. That's what the Torah did. That's what the law did. Paul says, use discernment and look at the fruit. Use wisdom and look at the fruit. That's a little more complicated. Following Jesus is not prescriptive. Sometimes it's discernment and wisdom. Friends, when Paul writes, walk in love, Be imitators of God, walk in love. Let me just tell you right now, there are going to be relationships in your life. And you know this if you've ever been in relationship with an addict. There are times when the most loving thing to do for that person is cut them off and out of your life. There are other times when love looks like taking in the outcast and the stranger, taking in those who are in a hard time. Friends, Christianity, walking in love... Yes, Lou Holtz is right. It's simple. Do what is right, avoid what is wrong, and if you have any questions, open up the Bible. But life is complicated. And sometimes the loving choice takes discernment and wisdom based on the situation, and sometimes you make a decision and you're like, I don't even know if that was the right one. I don't know if I chose the right school. I don't know if I chose the right career path. I don't know if I made the right decision with that person or that person or that relationship. And so Paul says, well, here's how you know. Check out the fruit and learn from it. You may have made the wrong decision. Maybe the fruit of that decision was bad. Well, there's grace. Get back on course. Go back. Make the wrong thing right. It's amazing. He talks about this, and this is a great example of, of how nuanced life really is. It's just not as simple as we would like it to be. He says this in chapter four, and I've read this for so long and been like, what? What do you mean, Paul? Says this in verse 426, he says, be angry, but do not sin. Good luck with that one. Try that one next time. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. A lot of you know, marriage conferences or marriage counselors or whatever, they will take that verse to mean, hey, never go to bed angry with your spouse. 
I'm gonna tell you right now, that's not what that verse means and that is not good advice. There are some nights where uh, you're both kind of hitting level red and you just need to go to sleep. And you need to talk about it tomorrow morning over a warm cup of coffee and after a good night's rest, amen somebody. What Paul is talking about here is this. He goes, there are going to be moments in your life where you get really angry. Go ahead, get angry. It's gonna happen. You're human. You can't avoid it. Anger is coming. Whether it's on the road with the guy that just cut you off, whether it's the person in front of you at Starbucks who cannot make up their mind on what to order, whether it's your children or your spouse or somebody at work, you're going to experience anger. And Paul goes, that's okay, be angry, don't sin. You see, where sin creeps in is the amount of time that goes from the moment of anger to the moment of forgiveness, to the moment of anger to the moment of reconciliation, because anger always divides. When you're angry at somebody, you're not trying to hang out with them all the time. You're not trying to go out and grab a cup of coffee and just be bros. You're angry, the relationship has a division. And so what Paul says is don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's a general term for, hey, don't let too much time pass or anger will actually transform into bitterness, resentment. It'll transform into gossip and slander. Anger will begin to morph into this root of bitterness that goes deep down in your soul. And now suddenly you've got another clamp on your arm, another vice of unforgiveness in your life. And that person isn't getting hurt nearly as bad as you are. Thought of it like this. Recently we had to, this is my downstairs bathroom. Uh, recently we had to replace the floor on my downstairs bathroom because when we were walking out the door, even though it was tile on top of this wood, uh, it started to feel a little more like a trampoline as you got close to the door and the tile was giving a little bit, which is a sure sign that something underneath is not right. And so uh, we had a contractor come in and he removed some of the, the edges and the baseboards and he revealed a lot of dry rot. Uh, in fact, if you pushed your finger on that part right there, it would have just gone straight through to our crawl space. And they had to replace this whole subfloor before they could replace the tile. And I said to the contractor, I said, how's the water getting in? Where's the gap? He said, well, actually, he pulled up the base of the door and he said, uh, this was never sealed properly when the house was built. There's supposed to be a waterproof barrier right here. There is none. So whenever it rained, the water would come right under your doorstop, straight into the wood underneath your tile. And over time, it rotted out the wood beneath your tile. Friends, anger is like that. When you allow time to pass without reconciliation, forgiveness, as much as it's in your possible power and strength to reconcile, you're allowing water to seep into the gaps and the cracks of your life. You're giving an opportunity to the enemy to create dry rot in your soul. And so what Paul is saying is this, Christianity is not prescriptive, I'm not gonna tell you what to do in every situation or how to live. It's about wisdom and discernment based on complicated relationships in all of our lives that we have to figure out what does it mean to walk in love here? What does it mean to walk as a child of the light here? What are the contours of this thing that I believe, this thing that I call 
Christianity. You with me? Sticking with me? So number three, the third thing is this. In this section of scripture, Paul really does lay out the life that we're looking for. And it's amazing because on the front end in chapter four, we've already looked at a few verses, but he talks about your words. He goes, don't let any corrupting or decaying talk come out of your mouth. Because if you talk bad about others, they're gonna wonder, hey, when I'm not here, do do they talk bad about me? And when you live a life of verbally judging others, eventually it's gonna come back around you and bite you in the back. He goes, watch your words. Watch how you handle money. Watch how you handle anger. Watch, watch these things. But then he, then he really says, let's get behind the closed doors of your life. And this was wild because in Paul's time, nobody, and I mean nobody, would tell men what to do. You see, it was fair game for any philosopher or um, governmental leader or any society leader in that day, which was a patriarchal system, to tell women what to do or children what to do or or to tell employees what to do. And the way that Paul ends chapter five and goes into chapter six is he talks about marriage, parenting, and workplace relationships. And yes, he does address wives, and yes, he does address children, and yes, he does address employees, bond servants. But you know who else he addresses? The men. He steps in and addresses the men. Now, in that time, you did not address a man about the personal affairs of his own household, about what went on behind closed doors. You did not address a man about his marriage, how his children were doing, how he was raising his kids, and you did not address the owner of a business about how he was treating his employees, who were indentured servants to him. And Paul says, actually, the Christian life If you want to live a life that shines like a city on a hill, it's going to look different than the cultural currents of our day. You see, the virtues of the Christian life, faithfulness, humility, servanthood, purity, strength, fortitude, courage, those are unending virtues. Those are anchored in the person of God. The the virtuous standards of our culture are temporary. They change from generation to generation. The virtues of the past generation are not typically the virtues of the present generation, and often they just go in circles. And Christians stand in the middle and they say, man, we have a value system that is anchored on the word of God and therefore eternal, while the culture around us shifts and twists and turns and all the while they look at us and they think we're crazy. And Paul is sitting here talking to husbands. And he says this in Ephesians 5, 21, he's getting into marriage, and he says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He goes on in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You don't see that on any like wall decoration when you walk in the house. Verse 21, he says, 
Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Check, that's totally culturally wonderful, awesome. All the men are like, exactly. Now God agrees with us. But then he goes down and he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her as a sacrifice. Laid down his life for her. Time out, pause. Paul, you don't tell me how to treat my wife. I'm the head of my household. Paul says, no, actually I do. And I've got some very clear instructions for you from the Lord because your marriage and you particularly as a man are called to represent Christ to the rest of the world. Friends, if you can, transport yourself 2,000 years ago and just imagine this. Imagine this. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus right after he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself as a sacrifice. And then in verse three, he says this, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So he's speaking to men here. And he's He's saying, I'm gonna step into your house and I'm gonna go behind the closed doors because I wanna talk to you men about marriage and faithfulness and fidelity because in Paul's day, that word sexual immorality is the English word for what we get, porneia. It involved any relationships outside of a covenant relationship between a husband and a wife any satisfaction or gratification that a man would be getting outside of the marriage covenant. That's what that word meant in Greek, and it means the same in English. And Paul steps right on in there, and he goes, guys, I know it is completely socially acceptable, especially in the great city of Ephesus, every night, for you and your boys first to hit up the temple of Bacchus, which was the, the god of wine and revelry, and to, to hit a few drinks, and then to get together, head up the hill, and go to the temple of Artemis, where then you would have your way with all the temple attendants, if you know what I'm saying. And for the men, that was completely culturally acceptable. Now, if a wife did the same, she was outcast, stoned, divorced, rejected. She was cast out from society. Talk about a double standard. Because the wife was just property of the man. The man could do whatever he wanted, but if he caught the wife cheating or doing the same, she was outcast. Why? Because he was jealous. He was hurt. Friends, humans are humans. He felt ashamed, disgraced. Therefore, he was getting rid of his shame by casting her out. Now, Imagine how the women felt exactly the same. They just couldn't say it. And so now picture this. Paul writes this letter to Ephesus, and he goes, here's what the Christian man is going to look like. Here's what he's going to look like. When all the boys get together and say, hey, we're heading to the temple of Bacchus before we hit up the temple of Artemis tonight, and they show up, and they're like, yo, Let's go, bro. We're here. It's going to be a great night. We do this every night. This is what we've done forever. And I imagine this man who's just read Paul's letter, who's been converted to Christianity and who realized, whoa, 
I'm supposed to love my wife in the same way that Christ loves me. I'm supposed to honor her only. I'm called to fidelity. I'm called to have intimacy with one woman and honor her for the rest of my life. And in in his mind, he's going through this battle of, that means no more this, no more that. And he looks at these guys that come knocking on his door and they're like, let's go, it's gonna be a great night. And he goes, I'm not going tonight. Why not, man? Are you sick? Come down with something? Nope. In fact, I'm not gonna go ever again. What? Why? This is what we do. We're we're Ephesians, man. We live in Ephesus. That's what the city is about. Your wife's got it. She'll get the kids to bed. She'll do the dishes. Let's go up the hill, man. No, actually, and I know, guys, this is gonna sound crazy, but I think I'm gonna stay here and help her with the dishes tonight. You know, maybe tonight I'm actually gonna help her get the kids down to bed. I imagine the most shocked bystander in that entire scenario was the wife. Jaw hit the floor. What? What is going on right now? Yeah, I, I, I'm called to something different right now. I can't do that anymore. I can't live that way anymore. I've got to honor her the same way Christ honors the church. I've got to submit myself to her the same way that she submits to me. I've got to completely change this relationship. Paul goes, I'm stepping behind the closed doors of your life, man, and I'm going to tell you how to be light in the midst of a dark world. Imagine... A month or two later, all the ladies around the watering hole getting the water that morning to take home. Imagine the glow on that woman's face. Imagine the joy and the confidence that she begins to carry. I'm the apple of my husband's eye. He's not running around like all the other guys. He he has eyes for me and me alone. Imagine all the other women at the watering hole. I'm about to have a talk with Jeff and Joe and Barry and all. What are they, this isn't right. We, we want a guy more like your guy. Of course, like it's, it shines light on a practice that obviously is a double standard. It's patriarchal and it's just flat wrong. And the fruit of the wrongness was apparent. And it was clear, and then one guy starts to walk in the light. He starts to walk in a way that says, I'm going to honor her and love her. And I guarantee you the fruit of his entire family changed, good and right and true, shining as a light in Ephesus. And I imagine all of these other Ephesians, the citizens of the city of Ephesus, are looking at this Christian community, (laughs) and they're looking at this going, man, that's weird, Those people are so progressive in their ideas. You're gonna be married to one woman and only be faithful to her your whole life? That is like progressive. Y'all are liberal. Funny how culture changes. What are these crazy new ideas that Paul is talking about? A man should submit himself to his wife? Should, Should not provoke his children to anger, but just actually care about what the kid thinks? Two, kids should obey. Bay and honor their father and mother. This is wild, progressive new ideas. Dangerous new ideas for the whole society. And Paul is standing here saying, this is what it looks like. Christianity, 
It's not prescriptive, it's discernment, it's wisdom, it is mutual submission, it is walking in love as Christ loved us. And it's gonna be a light to the entire world. It's gonna be a reflection of Jesus and people are gonna stop and look and say, what is going on over there? I'll close with this. The keys can come out. Probably the most important little phrase in this entire section was this, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. You see, Ephesians 1 through 3 was all about what God has done for us. It was about grace and mercy and forgiveness and redemption. It's about God saving us. And then chapters four, five, and six are Paul saying, well, here's the contours of the Christian life. Here's what it means to walk in love, to walk the new life with Christ. And I remember this word, beloved children, beloved child. I remember right after Lily Hope was born. And one of my favorite things to do, I was never happy about this, but after, you know, Lily Hope had been home for maybe a week or two, and we had brought her home from the hospital, tiny little infant. And she'd wake up a couple times in the night to feed, and then Lindsay would go back to bed and say, your turn, sweetheart. And I would take Lily Hope, and I'd be groggy, I'd be tired, but, you know, I'm walking her up and down the hall. Sometimes I'd walk outside and just kind of let her look around at the sky, but I would always try and catch her eyes, catch her attention. She's so young, you know, it's hard for an infant to focus her eyes, and I remember in the early weeks and months, I always wanted her to smile. I was like, man, I want to try and get her to smile, so I would look at her with a real serious face, and I'd just go like this. And nothing. She'd just kind of look at me touch my face, touch my nose, my beard, whatever. No expression. And I remember doing that over and over again for weeks on end, and I would just look at her, and I I would slowly smile. Come on, baby. Nothing. And then one night, I'll never forget, I don't know how long it was, but one night, she kind of caught my eye. She saw my face, and she just goes, and it melted me. I was like, Oh my gosh, that's amazing. She smiled back. She recognized my face and she was imitating the face of her father. She's smiling back and the whole point of the gospel, the whole Christian life, yes, Jesus is calling us friends to avoid sexual immorality, to live generously, to watch our words, to watch carefully the way that we choose to live, to choose what is good and right and true. And culturally, that's hard really hard because most of the current around us does not care about that stuff, doesn't even think it's important. In fact, they think it's odd, maybe dangerous. And what we have to remember is that all of this begins not to try and earn the smile of our heavenly father, but all of it begins because he's already adopted us and called us beloved children. He's already holding us up throughout our entire lives and the smile of God is on us. And he's just waiting for us to catch his eyes and to smile back and say, wow, you do love me. You gave everything for me. Therefore, I'm walking with you. And even if it feels bad, if it feels like dying to my own flesh, 
I am living under the smile of God as a beloved son, as a beloved daughter. I've been saved by grace, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live this life out and to be a light that shines in the darkness so that those who are living in futility, trying to find what they're all looking for in all the wrong places, they can begin to look at me who's imitating my father and they can see that's the way. That's the way I'm supposed to live. That's where I'm supposed to go. That's what a healthy life looks like. That's the life I've always been looking for. I've just been looking in all the wrong places. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.